18, as we look at what is known in Scripture as the high priestly prayer. This is where Jesus begins in the first five verses to really pray for himself. And then the verses 6 through 19, he begins to pray for his disciples. We would know them as the apostles. Once he hits verse 20 through 23, he begins to pray for the church. He begins to pray for you and me. And then, of course, he prays for, at at the very end, in verses 24 through 26, he prays for all that the Father had given, both the disciples and the church. And so we're going to see the progression through this prayer. And, And I understand that as we go through this portion, we're going to have 26 verses as we look to it. And there really isn't a a place that I could really pray and and sought the Lord where I could do it justice to divide this portion up. So we're going to just be looking at it in its whole, in its entirety. And I think the Lord will kind of guide us through this as, as we go through. What I want to do is before we even begin to look to this, I want to read it so that you and I have a full picture, a full understanding of what it is that Jesus here is declaring. And as I read it, I want you to understand that what the heart of this prayer is. Keep in mind that in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus just made this statement, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Do you understand the the end of chapter 16 is just this emphatic statement of victory. So don't think that he leaves victory and goes to doom. What what this prayer is, this prayer is literally the, the, the fruit of what that victory is. And so as we read this, I want you to just to keep in mind that this prayer is, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so it says in John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, and I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Verse 6. I've magnified your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. And now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them. And they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, 
Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may abide with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, and the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Absolutely incredible to see this prayer of victory that Jesus begins to declare. It's unique that as he's declaring, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Verse 1 says, Jesus spoke these words, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven. I want you to understand that what Jesus is doing is he is not praying the way you and I would normally pray. Do you understand? This talks about his posture. And normally when I talk about praying, I normally don't say, you know, bow your heads or close your eyes or do things like that. I usually say, bow your hearts. That the posture that God gives to you is is you're able to express it. But do you recognize that as we pray, whatever posture your body takes on, that your heart takes on a place of just awe and submission and reverence. You bow your heart before the Lord. And what Jesus is doing is he's lifting up his eyes. And I find this absolutely interesting that that is, is in a sense, a norm of his prayer, um, how he normally does this. In John chapter 11, verse 41, when he was there at the tomb of Lazarus, 
It says in verse 41 of John 11, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. You understand? He lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. This is a, a, a place, a position where, where Jesus' posture is not one of bowing down his head, but it's lifting up his head. That you begin to see just that reality of that he's looking to the Lord. There's two passages, just jot them down, don't turn there. But in Psalm 23, verse 1, you may know this, where it declares this, Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. In Psalm 22, verse 1, he says, I will lift up my eyes to the hill from where, my, from where comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Do you understand? He's lifting his eyes up. And, and sometimes I think, keep in mind that we sometimes normally just bow our heads, close our eyes so we don't get distracted. We kind of teach our children this. But Jesus was not one where he wasn't able to see through the atmosphere. He looked right to the Father. And it was one of those things where he could draw into that presence, and this is what he does. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. And then he says, Father, the hour has come. He makes mention that the hour has come. Now, we know that initially as we were going through this gospel when Jesus was there and his mother had asked him to turn that water into wine or said, you know, we've ran out of wine. What can you do? Help us out. And Jesus would turn water into wine. But he does say this in John chapter um, 2, verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The point where he was going to be identified, the point where he was going to be exalted had not yet come. There in John chapter 7, when he was his brothers were asking him if he was going to go to the feast. In John 7, verse 8, Jesus said, You go up to this feast. I am not yet going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. He's made this mention over and over again. In John 7, verse 30, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid hand on because his hour had not yet come. There was a point, there was a time that God had ordained that Jesus would die for the sins of the world. And at this point, he now says, Father, the hour has come. Now is the time. And within this time, the one thing that he's asking this, he says, glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. He's talking about the very glory of God. And, and I, I love the heart of this. Now, we've looked at recently, in the last couple of months, different passages that just deal with the glory. We've talked about how it's the Hebrew word kabod. And basically, it's, it's a, this outward display, if you will, of the perfection and excellence of every detail of his being and his ministry. And so we do know that here... At the very beginning of this gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it made this statement, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. 
the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There was a point where in this ministry, he's just the, the perfection of who he is, the perfection of his ministry. And basically, we do see that within this, there's this point of just that recognition of the very glory of God, his perfection, his his beauty, everything that in his purity shines like the brilliance. We learned this initially as we were going through the Old Testament. And there in Isaiah chapter 6, it's a beautiful passage in verse 3 where he says, and where the seraphim were each flying and they were crying to one another and they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And they said the whole earth is Filled with his glory. The, the, the earth begins to recognize the very beauty that is God. And as we look to that, it's just an amazing thing that we look to this thing, this kabod, this weightiness, this heaviness, and it's known as glory. Moses does something absolutely stunning and amazing in Exodus chapter 33 where in verse 18, he goes to God and he says, please show me your glory. I want to see your glory. I want to experience your glory. And eventually God says, listen, you, you can't actually you know, see my glory. You can't experience my glory face on. But what I'll do is I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you up with my hand. I'll pass by and then you can step back out and you can see my after glory. You can see the glory that passes by. But when the Lord was going through, in verse 19, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Do you know what he says? He says, I want to see your glory. Oh, you want to see the beauty and perfection that is me? You're going to see goodness. You're going to see goodness. And I'm going to proclaim to you the name of the Lord. I'm going to proclaim to you my character. This is the goodness of God. And, and it's a beautiful thing where he makes a statement in verse 22, and so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand while I pass by, and then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You're going to see what, what, what is left. There's something that's left of my glory and what's left is, is basically my character. And I love the heart of that because Jesus now, when he says, my hours come, the first thing he says is this, oh, Father, let this act that I am about to do, let this be a distinct perfection of excellence of your love and my love towards the world. And so he makes that statement, the hours come glorified your son, that your son may also glorify you. I want them to see this distinct perfection of excellence of what I'm about to do on the cross, and then may they glorify you in heaven, knowing that you are the one that has directed this. You are the one that basically, I'm, I'm asking you if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will. We know it's your will. We know it's your love for the people. Let them experience your love. And so as we go through this, initially we're seeing that he's praying for himself in these first five verses. And he's saying the first thing is, I, I, I'm, my, my time has come. 
glorify your son with the, that your son may glorify you. And he says, as you give him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. It's absolutely amazing that he says, you have given him authority that he should give eternal life. Now, just in case you, you think that we as Christians, that we have the in because we will live forever, understand that when he's talking about eternal life, it's not just forever, forever, forever being in existence. Do you realize that both those who receive Christ and those who reject the work of Jesus Christ, all of us will be forever and ever in existence. But eternal life is this, that you will be eternally in the presence of God. Eternal death, eternal damnation is you will be forever and ever not in the presence of God. All of us, every being that has ever been created is eternal. And what will happen is this, there will be some who will come to eternal life through the ministry of Jesus Christ, others who re will reject it. And they will have basically an eternity of separation. So when Jesus is making this statement, he says, you've given him authority. You've given me authority over all flesh. I recognize that what I'm going to do, I'm going to do for the world. And he says that you should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. So all that will come to receive the son through the, the will of the father. And he says in verse three, and this is eternal life that they may know you. And how do you know the father? Well, he said to Philip, listen, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. But I lived this life, I did this life that they can know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's this beautiful picture of the Trinity. As he says, I want them to know you, the only true God, the Father, and they would know me, Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And he says in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And I love the heart of this because as he makes that statement, he says, I know, Father, what you have done. I, I'm, I'm, I'm here to see you glorified through my work. So I have glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus already knows in his heart that he's going to fulfill the will of the Father. And so he can say, listen, I have finished the work. And now, O oh Father, verse 5, glorify me together with yourself. Let the glory that I have, the glory that you have, our glory that is knit together, may we just bask in this glory. May we bask in this distinct perfection of excellence that is our beauty and our ministry and our love for the world. And so he makes that statement, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. As Jesus was eternally God, he came to man. He said, listen, as God, I was there in that glory. I left that place of glory, humbled myself, became a man as a man. Yes, I, I, I became a servant to men. 
And then I humbled myself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. But with that, when you now raise me up, that I will be glorified and my name will be exalted. And at my name, every tongue shall confess, every knee shall bow to the very glory of the Father. There's this mutual glory that is being declared of. And so it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful word as he begins to pray for himself. And, and I think it's interesting that some Christians don't want to pray for themselves. They say, you know, it's kind of, you know, God knows what I need. God knows what I have. Yes, but at the same time, what? He wants you to share the fullness of your heart because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And there's nothing wrong with praying for yourself. Yeah, pray for others as well. He's about to do that. But there's nothing wrong with praying for yourself. And the one thing that Jesus wanted is this. I want you glorified. And I want to, to share in your glory as I'm doing this work so that you will be glorified, let me share in this glory with you, with the love that you shared, the work that will be done. Father, may you and I be one with this glory as we are one with the heart of the work that is going to really bring eternal life to all who will receive my finished work on the cross. And as he finishes praying for himself, he now moves on and he starts praying for the disciples. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. So he says, this is, this is what I'm doing. I, I've manifested your name to those who have, um, whom you've given to me. I've manifested your name. And, and so he's talking now to the disciples, to those whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they've kept your word. Now, at this point, he's talking about the disciples. And one of the things that I want you to understand that as he's praying for his disciples, he's praying for them to really understand his leadership. And I think what happens is this. If you consider yourself in any type of leadership position, whether you consider yourself as, as a, a leader in a ministry, whether you consider yourself a leader in a home, whether you consider yourself a leader over your children or grandchildren, whether you consider yourself a spiritual leader among your friends, this is a beautiful, beautiful understanding of really where Jesus begins to pray. And, and now we begin to see that here he's showing this presentation. And within the presentation, he's literally making these statements. There's going to be seven things that he does to help others grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you consider yourself a leader in any way and you want to help others grow in their faith, what Jesus does is he mentions in, this, in these next, from verses um, 6 to verse 19, as he prays for his disciples, he mentions seven things that he does for them to grow in their faith for them to mature in their faith. And these are things that, that you can do as well if you desire others to grow in their faith. Now, within these seven things, there's actually four 
directives that he begins to do. He talks about a presentation where he says, I've manifested your name. I've, I've presented them through my action and through my person who you are. There's a presentation that he talks about in verses 6 through 8. After that, he talks about a position where he, he makes a statement. He says, I, I want them to recognize the position that I'm in a position that they're in. And within that position, he talks about there in verses 9 through 11, that they are no longer of the world. They're not part of them, but they're taken out of the world and they're positionally in the Father. They're positionally in the Son. So he talks about their position. And after that, he talks about the protection. And there in verses 12 through 16, he, he makes a statement, while you know I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. There was a protection that he did. And, and he talks about this type of protection that he's given to them. And then lastly, he talks about a purification. As he's there in verses 17 through 19, he says, sanctify them, purify them, build them up. And so there's four items or four you know, things that he says that I'm going to work these things out. But there's seven distinct things that he does to help them grow in their faith. And if you consider yourself leadership, then I think just look at what Jesus Christ has done. And notice this is a prayer that comes forth from victory. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Look at the first thing that he says in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the men that you've given me out of the world. I've manifested your name. Now, when he says manifested your name, what is he saying? I've walked out your character. That's it. The name is synonymous with character. He says, I've manifested it. I have walked out your character. And I think it's a beautiful thing if you have a desire for others to grow in their faith, then let me just give you some advice. Do what Jesus did. Walk out the very character of God. He loved them to the end. They were sinners, yes. They were failures, yes, in so many ways. And yet he loved them and he showered grace on them. And he would lead them continually to say, listen, what I'm going to do is this. I'm not going to dictate to you what you should be doing. Note this, imitate me. And that's what Paul said. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm seeking to manifest the very character of God among you. I'm living it out. I'm not sitting back here doing what I want to do and, and dictating and mandating that you do it. I'm the one who's living it. I'm the one who's manifesting your name to the men that you've given me out of the world. Understand, they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So Jesus now recognizes that within his ministry, he takes on the ministry like you and I should do as a steward. These are God's, not mine. Do you understand that your spouse is God's, not yours? Your marriage is God's, not yours. It's his. You are a steward of it. Glorify him in it. Your children are God's, not yours. You're a steward of all these things. Your ministry is God's, not yours. Glorify him in it. And I love the fact that in all of these things, Simon said, I just lived your character. 
And I think it's so important. Live the character of God in your marriage. Live the character of God as you seek to <coughs> train up your children and your grandchildren. Live the character of God as you're among co-workers. This is the key to seeing them grow as they begin to see the character of God in you. Keep in mind that sometimes you're going to be the only, the only epistle that anyone ever reads. They'll never open the epistles. They'll never open the gospels, but they will see your life and they will read in from your life the very character of God. And so I love the fact that he says that here, I've manifested your name. Of course, he does so with the I am statements and all of his ministries that he's done. And then he says this. After he says that I've manifested your name, and he says in verse 7, now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. He wants them to know, listen, it's not me, it's my father. When you experience this love that I have, it's his love that I'm sharing. When you experience the grace that is bestowed, it's his grace that is bestowed. And I think it's important for you to recognize that that when you are giving out anything in your ministry, that they recognize that, that it is God who is directing you, God who's empowering you, God who's leading you. And I love the fact because he says, I've magnified your name. Now, verse 7, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. Understand that if the people think that you are a spiritual giant, not that what? That God is in you, that's what's a spiritual giant. It's always God in you, which is the hope of glory. It's God in you, which is a directive. Understand that they need to know that you are a failure like every other person is a failure, but it's God in you. It's his spirit. It's his directive. It's his leading. And so keep in mind that if you see anything good in me, if you hear anything good in these messages, you guys know what it is. It's that you've been praying for me to truly hear from the Spirit that God can speak forth his word. And the people who are sitting and listening to this word, that God has already what prepared their spirits to hear the word, prepared their hearts to receive the word, and that they begin to what? Allow this word to transform not only their thinking, but transform their very lives. And this is what Jesus begins to say, that they recognize what? It's the Father's heart. It's the Father's will to love you and to shower grace upon you. And then we see the second thing that he does is this. In verse 8, he says, not only have I manifested your name in the multitude of the ways, I've lived out your character And he says in verse 8, For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The second thing he does is this, is I've given them your words. I've shared them, your heart. Now understand that as he does this, he's saying, listen, I've given to them the words, what? That you've given me. Do you understand there's a lot of people, and I think some of them are well-meaning Christians, some of them aren't, 
But they use the word of God as a blunt instrument to beat people into submission. But they don't use the word of God to beat their own lives into submission. Do you understand that when we begin to use the word of God, the main thing is what? God, let your word deal with me first. I need you, Lord, to deal with the planks that are in my own eye, the sin that is in my own heart. And then as you deal with that, I can tell people this word is true. He does deal with the planks in my eye. He does deal with the sin in my heart. His word transforms me and I can share that. As 2 Corinthians says that we can comfort others with the same comfort wherein we've been comforted. God wants to do the work in us first so we can share. Yes, God is able to do this. God wants to do this. This is the heart of God. And I can tell you to trust in God. Why? Because he's led me through his word to say, trust in me. And he's shown that he's trustworthy. So I can tell you that if you trust in him and you trust in his word, he's going to show that he's trustworthy. This is who he's going to be. And so I give them words, what? That he's given to me. I've given them words that I know to be true. Why? Because they've been true in my life. And so understand the word, you don't just give the word to direct them and control them and to manipulate them so that you can live a comfortable life. You give them the words that he's given to you. You give them that which causes life because it's caused life in you. You give them those that cause joy because it's caused joy in you. You give them the words of peace because it's caused peace in you. Do you understand the key? I've given to them the words which you have given to me and they receive them. I love the fact that he says, just as I've received them and they're now in abundance in my heart, I'm able to give them and they're able to receive them. Why? Because I'm manifesting your character. I'm living out who you are. And they're seeing that it's your word is in me becomes power. Your word is in me that becomes life. This is where we begin to look. And I love the fact that the first thing he does is says, I've manifested your name. I've lived out your character. Second thing is, I've given them your words. Now understand that's a plural. And I want you to recognize that there's a distinction that is here in verse 8 to where verse 14 says, I've given them your word, which is in the singular. So he says, give them the words in the plural in verse 8. It's all the declarations. It's the declarations of life, the declarations of hope, the declarations of peace, all these declarations. I've shared them what you've given to me. And then in verse 9, we begin to see the next key that you do as you want others to walk with the Lord. It says this in verse 9. I pray for them. Oh my goodness. You want to see people grow? First thing you do, live out the very character of God. Second, give them the words that have given you hope. Give them the words that have given you life. Give them the words that have given you peace. Give them the words that have given you joy. Share those things. Give them the words that have given you life and light and love. And then pray for them. Pray for them. Let them be so on your heart and pray for them. And this is where that position is. He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but to those that you've given me for they are yours. 
Do you understand that you can say, you know what, God has called me to pray for you because he loves you. He loves you. It's a beautiful thing. There are just certain times where when we're here on the, the Wednesdays and we go through the, the church prayer list, there's one brother that I love his prayers. I love his prayers. Tonight he was praying over the salvation. And, and what he said was this, Lord, I thank you for so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And I thank you for so-and-so and so I love that. Not just God save these heathens, but I thank you for them. I thank you that they're on your heart. I thank you that they're a part of who you are. And, and Father, move in this way. It's such a glorious thing, and I love the heart. He says, pray for them. I don't pray for the world, but, but I, I do recognize, but, but for those whom you've given me, when you put them in my path, I want to pray for them. I don't want to just, just mention their names. I want to pray for them. I want you, Spirit, to show me all the things that, that they need spiritually in their lives that I could be lifting these things up. Do you understand? He doesn't say, I mention their names. He doesn't say that. I pray for them. You understand that the people that God has put in your life, if you want to see them grow, some of the reasons they don't grow is this. We don't pray for them. Sometimes we mention their name. Sometimes we'll mention an issue. But do you really pray for them? Do you pray for your spouse? Do you pray for your children? Do you pray for your friends? Do you pray for your coworkers? Do you really go before God in just an earnest prayer? Saying, God, I want to lift them up. And then listen to the Lord. Listen to his spirit. What do you want me to pray for? As you begin to pray for them, God is going to give you an intense love for these people. There have been certain people that God has put in my path. And to be honest with you, I really didn't want to pray for them. I had a boss and his whole thing was to belittle me in front of all the other co-workers because I was a Christian. And, and he would simply make mockery of my faith. And in every opportunity he could, he would do that. And you know what God told me to do? Pray for him. And I'm like, no, no, I just want him to go to hell. That's it. I'm good with that. And God said, no, I don't want him to. I want you to pray for him. And I'll tell you what, God began to change my heart for this man. And, and as I truly, sincerely prayed, and at first it was just a mockery, kicking his teeth. God, I know that prayer. Deal with him according to his sin. And God just changed my heart and gave me a love. And I really began to pray, God, open his eyes, open his heart. And amazingly, when I left that company to go to the ministry, he was seeking. And I was so grateful for those opportunities because I was able to share the word and share the word and share the word. At all the meetings that he tried to diss my God, I was able to share how good God was. And so it was one of those things where it's important. Pray for them. Why? Because God's put them in your path. And this is what he says in verse 9. I pray for them. I, I, I do not pray for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. 
and all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. You understand that as you begin to express the love of God as you're praying for these people and you're praying, God, put your grace, put your love, put your, God is glorified. And I love that because when he's glorified, we can, in a sense, enter into that glory as we begin to pray the, the, the work of God and the love of God to fall upon these people. And it's just a beautiful thing that he begins to direct. And as he talks about their position, he says, listen, they're yours. They're not the world's, they're yours. And then he says this in verse 11, now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. You understand he recognizes his position as what? I am not part of this system. And as a leader, if you want to see others come to know the Lord, you've got to come to this conclusion. You are not part of this system. You are an ambassador to a different kingdom. This world is not your home. This world is not yours. Heaven is your home. And you're here as an ambassador. And so you recognize, I'm no longer in the world. The world is going to hate me because it hated him. But I recognize these are in the world. I'm going to pray for what the world's effect on them is. And as, as we, we recognize, he does this. When he says, but these are in the world. Notice what he says in verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but you should keep them from the evil one. In other words, don't separate them from the ugliness. Don't separate them from the destruction. Don't separate them from the hate, but, but keep their hearts and minds set on you. A lot of the times it's through being in the world that what? We cling to God because I, I recognize the filth that's here. I recognize the purity that's in you. I want to cling to you. But he says, very simply, these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you've given me that they may be one as we are. Do you understand that his prayer is that they would be knit to the heart of the Father as you are knit to the heart of the Father? Do you know what that means? It means that you should seek to be more and more connected to the heart of the Father. The more you are connected to his heart and his word and his life source is what? You're going to be bringing them into that life source. If you've got one little tendril hanging on to God, what kind of God are they getting out of you? Do you understand? It's just a little trickle thing. Why aren't you walking with God? Where are you at? Now, when you have, as, as the Lord says, the torrents of living water are flowing from you, guess what they're going to get? They're going to get part of that torrent of living water. And I love the fact that he, he says, listen, I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those who you've given me that they may be one as we are. I want them to be a part of what I have with God and understand that the deeper my relationship is with God is going to be what? The deeper they can tap into we talked about it on Sunday, we're like that tree that's planted by the rivers of water there in Psalm 1. That's who we should be. 
And when you're planted in that way, you have this life source that comes. Your leaf isn't withering. You're always bearing fruit when God calls you to bear fruit. It's going to bear fruit in its season. And this is God. And I love the fact, he says, within this position, I want them to be knit to you as I am. And I think it's so important that what happens is this. You first. We always want other people to, I want them to be knit to God. I want them to, but I don't want to do it myself first. I want to take it easy. I want them to be knit with God so I can kind of just take it off of them. But that's not what God wants. Me first, cling to God, be a part of that, and that they may be one as we are. That's that positional where he's praying for them. And now in verse 12, we see here the fourth thing that he declares. He makes a statement, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. My actions sought to always bring them back to your heart. This is what we do. That while I was with them in the world, when you're there in the world, you don't take them out of the world, but you strengthen them in the character of God. You strengthen them in his love. You strengthen them in his word. You strengthen them in his hope. You strengthen them in his peace. You strengthen them in the same way that you're strengthened. You comfort them with the comfort you've been comforted with through the word and through his spirit. That's what he declares. You need to keep them, strengthen them. May my actions bring them closer to your character as I'm in your character. And so I love that. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled themselves. I love the fact that he recognizes that I can pray and I can lead, <clears throat> but there are going to be certain people that still won't come. <clears throat> you may find that true in your family. You may find that true in coworkers. You may find that true in friends. Understand that there are some people that no matter how much light, how much love, how much grace that you share with them, they will never come. And that's what Jesus recommends. Keep in mind that, that Jesus was with Judas for three and a half years. He sent Judas out with power. Go, heal, heal those who are sick. Cast out demons. Judas was part of that group. He sent out the 12, not the 11. And as Judas was able to, he was able to witness the, the power of Christ and the love of Christ, and yet he was not Christ. And so I love the fact that, that while you're with them, keep them in the name, but realize that there are going to be some. We don't know who they are, so we love all, we pray for all, we do it. Jesus didn't exclude Judas because what? Judas was going to betray him. Do you understand? He loved Judas. In fact, even when Judas betrayed him with a kiss, he said, friend, friend. And so I, I think it's important to recognize that. But then we see this <clears throat> in verse 13. He says, now I come to you and these things I 
I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And I love the fact that he says, I want them to experience what I experienced with you. And I think it's interesting that there's a lot of Christians that when you take a look at what their experience is with God, there's one word that usually doesn't come up, joy. There are some people whose walk with the Lord is anything but joy. It is sad, and it is miserable, and it is just horrible. And, and they, they go around that like they have no joy. And I love what the Lord says, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Do you realize as a Christian, there should be an amount of what? Joy that you have. You don't have to be just rolling in holy laughter. That's not what I'm saying. But the joy, that, that deep satisfaction within your heart, in the core of who you are, that I know I belong to God. I know that he has a plan. And I can tell people God is good. I can tell people he has a plan. I can tell people that I trust him now. Why? Because, listen, I know how it ends. I know what the next chapter is going to be. I know how that's going to be. It's a victorious walk in him. And it's coming. And this is the beauty of, of what the word of God is. And I think as a Christian, when you are declaring this and, and you're, 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 you're telling them about their positions that are there, do you literally say, oh my goodness, this is what it is. There's joy in the Lord. And so we, we recognize that it's not, you know, always happy, always just bubbly laughter, but there's joy. And I think what happens is there's going to be sometimes you're not expressing that, but there should be times you do express that. The sad thing, I've seen Christians, they have no expression of joy at all. Their whole Christian walk is just of, of sad defeatism. Oh, poor me, and woe is me, and I'm so this, and I'm so that, and, and, and yet what? You're more than conquerors. Jesus, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. See, out in the world, you're going to have tribulation. In me, you may have this joy. If you tap into me, we talked about on Sunday, it's so important to recognize this. And so I love the, 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 the fourth thing that he said there in verse 12, I keep them. My action brings to them God's character. And of course, the last of that character, I just love verse 13, which is joy. And then in verse 14, the fifth thing, he says this, I've given them your word. I've given them your word. Now understand that this is singular. And so when he talks about I've given them your word in the singular, it would mean this. It would mean I've given them the, the full and whole and singular revelation of you, Father. You understand? I've given them the word. that I am that, that word that became flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so when he uses this word in the singular, not the words like in verse 8, where he talked about over and over again, you know, the, the declarations of God, all those things. But now I've given them your word, this very singular, this whole perfect revelation of God the Father. So I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So I've, I've showed them you, Father, and guess what? And the world's hate them 
Because it hated me, because it hates you, because your light and life, this revelation of who you are, they don't want anything to do with you. But I think it's so important that the very fifth thing he says is I've given them this whole and singular perfect revelation of God. And this is where if you want to see people come to know the Lord, give them the full and complete singular revelation of God. What do you do? Show them Jesus. Show them Jesus. If they've seen him, they've seen the Father. And it's important to say, I've given them this distinction. I've given them this, this revelation, this, this perfect, singular, whole, complete understanding of who Jesus is. That he is God. And God became a man. And God died on the cross. And God shed his blood in a brutal sacrifice so that you and I could be made whole and right before the Lord. And so there in, in first. You know, 14, he gives that, that fifth thing that, that he does. And as he does, he then says this in verse 16. Now, they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And, and I love the fact that where he says in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So as, as he makes this statement, he says, listen, just as I'm not of the world, and the world hates me because I'm not of that. They're in the world, but not of the world. The world's going to hate them. And, and I'm telling you, don't take them out of the world, but protect them while they're in the world. And this is what God does. Do you understand that when the world goes through what the world goes through, we are going to go through that too, but they are going to go through that what? Without being able to hold the hand of the Father. See, we're not alone as we go through this. We are holding on to God's hand. We're holding on to his promises. We're holding on to whom he declares to be. And this is a beautiful thing where he makes that statement. I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one because they're not of the world, just some not of the world. Because they're not of the world, protect them. The world's going to hate them, so protect them. And then we see here this sixth thing that he says in verse 17. The sixth thing is this, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Purification, sanctify them. And, and I love the heart because he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Do you understand that the sanctification process is something that is done through the word of God? But it's his word. It's not the word you want them to know. It's his word that he declares. So often what we desire as Christians is I want to see other people sanctified. So I'm going to tell you do this because of the word. You do that because you need to pray more because of the word. You need to do your devotions because of the word. All these things that we tell them, you need to do this and do this and don't do this and don't do this. And I'm trying to sanctify you through the word. And, and, and what happens is this, sanctify them by your truth. And, and what's so amazing is this. He says, your word is truth. Give them the, just give them the word. And let God be the one to sanctify them. I'm not the one that has to sanctify them. I'm the one that's going to do what? I'm going to share the truth. But I'm going to share all of the truth. Not just the ones that I need them to do. Not the ones that I just need you to work on. But I need to share with you the whole of the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says this in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. 
Put them in the world armed. Give them the armor of God. Give them those, those things that they can trust in you. Give them those things that they can believe in you. And then he says this, and the seventh thing I think is key. And understand who's saying this. In verse 19, Jesus, God incarnate, is making this statement. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Oh my goodness, do you understand what he just said? For their sakes, I sanctify myself. Now keep in mind that in Scripture, and I want you to understand this, there are two types of sanctification. Both basically lead to the same thing, the process of holiness. When God sanctifies you, he does it all at once. You're a done deal. He sees you as sanctified. That's God's view in heaven. You're already sanctified. Nothing's left for you to do. But on our side, there's what's known as a sanctification process, and it's a daily thing where I'm getting rid of sin in my life and I'm drawing near to God. But I love the fact that what Jesus does in, in verse 7, he says, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth, that can be that one-time fullness of sanctification, save them. But then he says this in verse 19, for their sakes, I sanctify this daily process myself. See, so often we want to do is we want to do the, the, I need you to work on this and work on this and work on this and work on this, when God just says, you're fine. Do you understand the difference of a relationship? If you can look at others and say, you're fine, but I got to work on me. That's not what Christendom does. Christian is like, I'm good the way I am, but I'll let me fix you. But if you give them that sanctification of verse 17 that says it's a done deal, sanctify them by your truth. Let them know, Father, that their sins are forgiven and they can come before you wonderfully, boldly. But what I want to do in me is this. I want to sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I want them to see the word of God working in me. If you want to see others come into a loving relationship with Christ, a deeper relationship, then let the word of God minister to you. Let the word of God sanctify you. It's a beautiful thing that he begins to do as he prays for his disciples and he gives them these, these four you know, foundations of the presentation I've manifested in the position. You're not in the world, but you're of the Father, the protection. Watch over them. Keep them in your word. Keep them in your truth. Give them your joy. And lastly, the purification. Let them know that God has made them right, but let it in me, let it be a daily process. And we as Christians, we just get it reversed. We just think, oh, I'm perfect the way I am. Well, let me give you the word so I can fix you today and fix you tomorrow and fix you the next day. But then he does this. He shifts now when he begins to pray for the church in verse 20 through 23. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. You know who he's praying for? In verse 20, you can say, I do not pray for these alone, but also put your name there. I do not pray for these alone, but also put your name there. Those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. 
I love the heart of this and the glory which you gave me. I've given them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be made perfect in one. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. I love the fact that he's calling for unity. Notice this. He's not calling for uniformity. There's a lot of times in the Christian church that we think we all have to get along and no matter what doctrine you bring in, I'll swallow it and I'll live with it. That, that's not uniformity, but unity. There are still false doctrines out there. There are still false teachers out there. There is false doctrine and false teachers, but what he causes us to be is what? That we would be knit in him. And there should be a unity that we have in Jesus Christ. That we would do what we should be doing is majoring in Jesus and minoring in all other things. And when you minor in things, guess what? When something's a minor doctrine, then this, guess what? Just disagree agreeably. You don't have to all come into this place of uniformity and conformity, but there has to be a unity that we are sinners saved by grace through the work of Jesus Christ. And then if we're different in certain areas, I, I don't mind that. But he wants us to be what? In him. That's why he says in verse 21, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The unity of the Christian church should be drawing the world to do one thing. See God and know that God is the one who sent the Son, and we are in the Son, and so we can love one another. And so in verse 22, and the glory which you give me, I've given them. He says they can be a part of this work and this glory as others come to faith. This glory which you've given me, I've given them that they may be one. Share in the work of salvation. Share in the work of drawing people closer to the Father. And then when you do that, the Father's glorified. You're able to share in that. And then he says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one. A unity in us that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. You understand that the world needs to know not just that Jesus is love, but that God the Father is love. He's the one who sent the Son. He's the one who's done the work. He's the one that has said, I want this. I want them close to me. I want them to be able to have access. And the Son said, I'll take care of that. But it's the Father's heart to love and that we should be able to love others. And then he does this. The amazing thing is he prays for the disciples and us in verse 24. And he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. So now he's still praying for the church, but he includes now those that you've given me. So in verse 24, he just simply adds his disciples back into this prayer that he's praying for the church. He says that they may be with me where I am. And that they may behold my glory. Father, bring these and the church to me. Bring them home. And, and I love this heart that he says, let them come and see the, the manifestation of my perfection. Let them see my glory. Let them see the beauty of this work. Let them come into an intimacy 
with us. And so he says in verse 24, My Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, and they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let them come and witness my glory. Let them come and witness this beautiful manifestation of this perfection of who I am and what I've done. And in that, they would recognize how much you love me. And in that, they would recognize how much you love them. And he says in verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I've known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name. And I love it. Just, just, just think about that passage there in, in, in Exodus where we talked about Moses coming in Exodus 3. I want to see your glory. And this is what he says. I've declared your name to them. I've declared your character. I've declared your name. And I will declare it that the love which, which you love me may be in them and I in them. <coughs> Absolutely amazing. As he begins to wrap this up, He says, I've given them your character. I will declare it. I will declare it. I will declare it. <clears throat> so that what? So the love which you love me may be in them. They will understand the love of God. They will understand the love of the Father. And they will, through understanding your love for them, let me and my work be a part of them. <clears throat> that they would understand that God so loved the world that he sent me into the world. And this is the key. And, and may that be our hearts as we seek to draw others into coming to this beautiful relationship with the Father. It's, it's the most intimate and perfect prayer of victory that Jesus spoke and may we come and just really mull on it and chew on it and pray through it and say, Father, if there's anything that you need to do in my life, draw me into this so that I could say what? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is the heart. This is the key to the gospel. Father, we are so, so grateful for these words, Jesus, that you spoke, these words of victory, these words of hope, these words of life. And I'm praying, God, that, that you would do that work in, in my life, that you would do the work in anyone who so desires to think that they are, are a type of leadership to draw others closer to you. That we would truly take these words and take them to heart. We would understand that this is who you are. This is what you do. This is what you have done. And when we become vessels, Lord, of this message May we become partakers of the glory as others receive this, your word. Receive this, your act. Receive this gift, your salvation and your love and this life which is eternal with you. Oh, be glorified, Father. Be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said.